Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Lena Khatib, director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. Our conversation today is about the war in Syria. How can it come to an end? And if it does, what will that end look like? Lena, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be back. Now, I was reading a piece you wrote three years ago, and you said then, there seems to be a growing sense of nonchalance regarding the Syrian conflict within the policy community, both internationally and regionally, even when facts emerge that categorically prove that serious transgressions are taking place. That was uh, three years ago in regards to a chemical weapons attack by the Assad regime. Has anything changed for the better within the international and regional policy community, or has that nonchalance become something worse? Unfortunately, three years since I wrote that piece, not much has changed. If anything, there is even more disengagement when it comes to the international policy community and Syria. It's as if a lot of people in the West in particular have uh, taken the position that the Syrian conflict is just there to stay. Uh, when the reality is the conditions for the average person in Syria today are much worse than at any point uh, during the conflict, uh, because conflict is not just about violence, it's also about livelihoods. And right now, in addition to the brutality of the Syrian regime and its allies, Syrian people are suffering across the board economically. And meanwhile, there is no policy being developed outside that tackles the fundamental problem at heart, which is the political situation in Syria and the need for a political transition. Yeah, and we have this situation, don't we, because the the, the fifth Brussels conference on humanitarian aid for Syria just concluded. The aid is critically necessary, but is there an argument to be made that the aid actually serves to enable the continuation of the war? The aid does not enable the continuation of the war. The aid is necessary because people, as I just mentioned, are really suffering. They need basic goods. They need basic services. But the problem is not the aid itself. The problem is thinking that aid can be a replacement for policy. Aid is not a replacement for political transition. Uh, Ultimately, aid is only going to deal with a very small component of the side effects of having this regime of Bashar al-Assad in place in Syria and having conflict continue. Because as long as the regime is there, people are going to be disenfranchised and are going to be suffering not just economically, but also in terms of security and livelihoods. And therefore, aid is going to continue indefinitely if this is all what the international community is willing to do, but this will not solve the problem. So the issue is aid should be part of a comprehensive strategy that looks at politics, security, the economy, development, transitional justice. Many issues need to be addressed. Um, And if anything, I am bothered when international policymakers look at conferences like the Brussels conference and treat it as an opportunity to tap themselves on the back that they are doing something about Syria when the reality is, for me, this is a very uh, simplistic way of addressing a very complex problem. And Europe should be, from a a self-interest point of view, 
should be looking for solutions, uh, shouldn't it? I mean, one would imagine that Europe would be alarmed after waves of migrants uh, fled from Syria to Europe. And obviously, these migrants, some of them, of course, are working and contributing to the economy, but a lot of them have also uh, needed a lot of support uh, by European governments. You'd also think that Europe's values would be at play here, you know, thinking about human rights and and the issue of justice and social justice. Uh, you'd think that politics uh, in Europe would be extended when it comes to its values to uh, countries uh, in the neighborhood uh, around Europe. Unfortunately, these two things are not kind of going according to what logic might dictate. You'd think that it is in Europe's interests to uh, lessen the economic burden on itself when it comes to supporting uh, Syrians. You'd think that it wants stability in its neighborhood so that people don't have to um, flee in the first place and become asylum seekers and refugees, whether in Europe or elsewhere. But unfortunately, we're not seeing that. And I think the reason is solving a problem like the Syrian conflict definitely needs a multi-layered, multifaceted, international, coordinated approach uh, that has to start with serious willpower in the United States as opposed to Europe. Europe on its own, unfortunately, cannot do it. And therefore, I think Europe is just once again dealing with the symptoms rather than the actual problem because of lack of capacity in Europe to really tackle um, what's at the heart of this issue, which is the politics. So in a way, we can say that U.S. disengagement primarily regarding the Syrian conflict is not just letting down Syrians, but it's also letting down America's own allies in Europe. Yeah, well, I wanted to move on to America because under both Obama and Trump, uh, there was a disengagement, Obama's famous red line, um, Trump's uh, continuing that, that policy of disengagement. Do you sense a change coming from the Biden administration? And if there is a change, what difference could it make? At the moment, it's too early to make a judgment about the Biden administration and the Syrian conflict, especially that we have not yet seen the appointment of a senior level envoy for Syria. And the Biden administration has not yet formulated a strategy for Syria. If anything, I think the Syrian issue has been downgraded with the Biden administration. I think the main concern for this administration is Iran and Syria perhaps can be a component of a wider Iran strategy. Of course, with the Biden administration, we see a bit of a change from the previous administration and that this administration is interested in having the U.S. rejoin a nuclear deal with Iran. But at the same time, and this is where it's different from the Obama administration, at the same time, it's saying the U.S. needs to pursue a parallel line regarding Iran's regional role. Now, Syria would fall under the second component, which is Iran's regional um, activities. However, at the moment, we are not seeing what exactly the U.S. is going to do about Iran's regional activities. Um, 
Syria deserves, regardless, in my view, its own strategy. I think regarding it as just a component of the Iran issue is not enough. The Syrian issue is far more complicated than that, um, especially with the multiple actors that are uh, active in Syria, at the top of which is Russia, of course. So I don't think dealing with Russia's influence in Syria falls under uh, a strategy about Iran's regional role. Um, and therefore, uh, I am still on the fence regarding what the Biden administration might do. Of course, we've heard good things, good statements, such as by Secretary of State Blinken, um, who has admitted that the Obama administration had made mistakes and uh, is saying all the right things. My concern is that, of course, even under the Obama administration, we also heard all the right things, but that was not coupled with action. Uh, under the Trump administration, of course, the Syrian issue was, was again dealt with as a component of the Iran issue, and that did not really result in any resolution. So it's a wait and see for this administration, um, but it's too early to tell. Yeah, and I suppose it's a question of how long uh, do we need to wait before we get a sense? Because, you know, he, in other areas, as you say, Blinken has shown leadership and clearly there is the focus on JCPOA. But is it not just a trifle disappointing that there hasn't been more leadership in regards to Syria, that there hasn't been a Syria uh, a figure named uh, in, in that portfolio to try and resolve the conflict? I mean... It is disappointing in the sense that uh, we've seen leadership on other issues, uh, such as the Yemen conflict, and as we were just saying, Iran. Um, we've seen at least some uh, statements about Saudi Arabia, for example, but Syria has not really been uh, much on the radar when it comes to this administration. It is a disappointment. Uh, one could also argue that, well, with all these conflicts raging at the same time, the administration needs to prioritize. I personally think the Yemen conflict is perhaps a little easier to resolve than the Syrian conflict. And perhaps the administration needs to show some success in drawing one of these raging conflicts to a close before moving to a more complicated one, because success on the Yemen file would also instill some confidence um, uh, in the international community about conflicts being able to be resolved, perhaps. So um, that's why I, I think, yes, as disappointing as it is that Syria is not yet, you know, high on the list, um, I'm still in the wait and see camp. Now, you mentioned the Russians who were, of course, instrumental in turning the tide in Assad's favor back in 2015. Do you think that they might be growing weary of the war and might that create an opportunity for some sort of a peace dialogue? Well, actually, I think Russia is regarding its intervention in Syria as a success. Ultimately, Russia entered the Syrian conflict to stand up to the United States in particular and the West in general. And it's intervening at very low cost. Russia does not want to pay for the war in Syria. Russia wants to benefit from this war. That is something it has not yet achieved economically because Russia is still hoping that the international community is going to normalize relations with the Assad regime and therefore construction or reconstruction money would flow into Syria and Russia wants to be the broker when that scenario materializes. Now, that scenario has not materialized largely thanks to uh, American sanctions 
acts like the Caesar Act and others, and sanctions, of course, by uh, imposed by the European uh, Union. And therefore, uh, for Russia, this is not game over. It is regarding how things are going so far as a success because it has managed to keep Assad in power. Now, Assad has now become a weaker president. He's become dependent on Russia and, of course, on Iran. And a weaker Assad actually suits Russia a lot more than a strong Assad because a weaker Assad is more easy to, uh, in a way, influence. And therefore, for Russia, it is also a wait-and-see kind of situation. And there are some indicators, of course, that some countries whether in Europe or outside, such as in the Gulf, are potentially interested in normalizing relations with Assad or, or just saying, you know, let's just accept that the, this is the de facto power on the ground and just move on. And this is music to Russia's ears. So I think for Russia, full success, full victory has not happened yet, but it feels it's going in that direction. And it feels that eventually the international community is going to crack and just accept Assad in power, and that's it. That's why the only hope really lies in Washington. It's only the United States that is able to influence its allies around the world uh, to not let this situation happen. So for as long as the US continues to impose sanctions and for as long as the EU continues to follow suit, I think Russia is going to start feeling um, frustrated. But unfortunately, Russia is also playing the waiting game, and because it is not really paying for this war, sadly, yes, it is um, able to wait. It can afford to wait. The, the people who cannot really wait are the Syrians, because ultimately, when we talk about these geopolitical uh, challenges and struggles and, and competitions, it is the people on the ground who pay the price every single time. Mm. And it is a terrible terrible price that that the people of Syria are paying. Iran, now you make an interesting point that Iran in Syria should not be seen as some sort of bargaining chip towards the JCPOA. But but I'm just wondering, do you think that Iran might say, well, all right, we'll, we'll draw down a little bit in Syria and use that as a negotiating tactic uh, to get the U.S. to drop sanctions, because that's their position. You drop the sanctions, then we'll come back to the table. What do you think? Iran may well compromise a bit in Syria, and we have to remember that Iran's influence in Syria goes way back before the crisis started in 2011. Uh, Iran has uh, had soft power influence in Syria for decades. Uh, its relationship uh, with the Assad regime goes back to the days of Hafez al-Assad, uh, Bashar's father. So for Iran, rolling back its military role in Syria and retaining a soft power role is acceptable. And I think Iran would be willing to make these kinds of compromises uh, were the U.S. to uh, lift some sanctions. So unfortunately, this means that any policy that is based on trying to eradicate Iranian influence is just not realistic. All we can hope for is a rolling back of Iranian uh, influence, as things stand, of course. Um, were the U.S. to pursue, let's say, greater goals regarding uh, the Iranian regime, that would play out very differently in Syria. But as things stand... The indicators are that 
the US is trying to uh, get Iran in a way to behave when it comes to the nuclear issue and regional issues. Um, and that means a compromise eventually. And this compromise means Iran will be there in Syria being influential. And we have to remember that Syria is very important for Iran. It's not as important as Iraq is for Iran, but it is important because it's the thoroughfare through which Iran sends weapons to uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, for example. Um, and therefore, for Iran, uh, Syria is not a place it is willing to give up on just like that. Hmm. Now, there are, as you said, so many players, uh, outside players in the Syrian conflict, uh, as there are in Yemen, but, but even more so perhaps in Syria. It, it makes it extraordinarily difficult to uh, unravel. But another one, of course, is Turkey, which is using the conflict for its own purposes, primarily to suppress what Ankara regards as Kurdish terrorism. Given that, can you see Turkey playing any kind of a positive role in moving towards peace negotiations? I mean, Turkey has long given up on uh, trying to change the regime in Syria. And ultimately, that was never its primary focus or target anyway, because, as you said, Turkey's preoccupation with Syria is really about the Kurdish issue and trying to prevent a Kurdish uh, ruled autonomous region on its border. Um, I think Turkey is very open to compromises. Turkey wants to be at the table than, uh, you know, be excluded in uh, any negotiations on Syria. I think Turkey is quite pragmatic on the matter as long as it feels that uh, the Kurdish issue is kind of in line with its own objectives. Um, and therefore, I, I see that almost whatever scenario is uh, presented by the international community were the US to decide to develop political will to reach out to Russia and come up with a bilateral agreement regarding ending this conflict in Syria. And as long as, as I said, Turkey feels that the uh, Kurdish issue is, is, is not a threat to it, I think Turkey would be very willing to go along. We haven't touched yet upon the UK, and uh, I don't know, is there any role the UK could play, should play? I mean, unfortunately, there is no distinct UK policy regarding Syria. I think the UK is just waiting for uh, a sign from Washington. And whatever is decided in Washington, I anticipate the UK is going to support. Um, so at the moment... Uh, I don't see a leadership role for the UK. The UK is not the actor that's going to bring the uh, Russians or the Assad regime to the negotiating table, just like the UN has not been able to bring them to, to the negotiating table in a meaningful way. We've only seen, um, unfortunately, a Geneva process that is stalled and, and that Russia uses just to, you know, gain time while the world, in a way, grows wary of the, um, of the Syrian conflict and, and eventually, uh, as Russia hopes, um, starts thinking about normalizing with Assad. And so I think uh, the UK, just like other uh, international actors in Europe, can play a supportive role, uh, can play a role in implementing um, a peace uh, deal, but it's not the actor that's going to start a process of peace building in Syria. Now, look, I, I just want to go back uh, briefly to the, the most recent Brussels conference. You wrote an article in which you said that Syrians need more than aid, they need freedom and dignity. Can, can you open that up a little bit for us? 
Yeah, I mean, when it comes to freedom and dignity, um, I mean, we're 10 years after the Arab Spring, and these were the demands not just of Syrians, but of Arabs across uh, the region who had demanded freedom and dignity and justice in 2011, hoping that the regimes that ruled them would um, either fall or at least reform themselves. And sadly, in a lot of places, uh, this has not happened. And the problem is with Syria in particular is that the um, uprising in 2011 uh, quickly became a crisis that developed into full-on conflict. And when it comes to conflict settings, uh, sadly, the focus is often on military gains or losses and on political bargains, and people forget about the average citizen on the ground and, and, and the demands that uh, drove this whole situation in the first place. So we shouldn't forget that freedom and dignity remain missing uh, in Syria, and that uh, any solution to the Syrian conflict has to bear this in mind that these are the demands of the Syrian people at the end of the day. And any so-called solution that falls short of that is not going to solve the problem. It's going to perhaps paper over it um, while the grievances continue. So it's a reminder to address the core issues, the core drivers, whether in Syria or elsewhere in the Arab world. So then, can you sketch a picture for us of, of what a peace in Syria could look like, and might it be forced to include Bashar al-Assad? I don't think that there can be any peace uh, deal in Syria that retains Bashar al-Assad in power. Uh, this regime of Bashar al-Assad has proven for the last 10 years and even before that, of course, that it is not a regime that is capable or willing um, uh, to reform. And uh, therefore, I think the only solution has to be through political transition. Now, when we say political transition, um, the pragmatic solution would be to have a transitional government formed in Syria that has elements of pragmatists from the current regime uh, as well as people representing the various opposition uh, figures and factions, whether in Syria or outside. I think this is a more realistic way forward, but having Assad in power is, is simply not, not a solution in my view. Do you think, though, that the Russians, for example, would accept that Assad has to go at some point? I think for uh, Russia, Assad is highly disposable. I think the fact that he is in power suits them because they know that he would be the easiest uh, figure to uh, sacrifice if needed. I think Russia would be willing to get rid of Assad if it uh, is assured that it can, for example, maintain influence in Syria, that it can retain uh, a naval base, uh, that it can have some uh, economic deals that would uh, benefit it if it could retain, uh, in a way, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the position it has achieved through um, uh, its intervention in Syria, meaning saving face. Um, I think, yes, Russia would be willing uh, to see Assad go if uh, it feels that its influence in Syria is going to be retained. And Iran? I think also for Iran, uh, Assad is not really the key issue. The key issue is having influence in Syria. 
Perhaps Assad has been uh, very accommodating to Iran. Perhaps the Iranians might be a bit more concerned about seeing him go. But once again, they have greater goals that actually go beyond the lifespan of Assad himself. And that's something we have to bear in mind, that Iran pursues a regional strategy that's based on generation-long planning. And therefore... Um, it would be myopic to think that Iran's involvement in Syria is tied to the figure of Assad himself. It's actually a lot more long-term than that. Now, now finally, now, the last time we had you on our podcast, you told me that the Arab Spring is not a failure. I know you still believe that. But but also, I, I you said, and, and I, I pulled this quote out because I think it's very interesting, in a lot of places the wall of fear has been broken. There is a fundamental change. There is still a fundamental change. And my position has not shifted since I last spoke to you because that was not a long time ago. And the way I see the Arab Spring is as a generation-long process. It's not something that's going to yield results in even a decade. Um, I think within the new generation, there is a change. There is a lot more openness to the world. There is a lot more knowledge about how other people are living their lives. And young people in particular are not going to put up with the same things that their parents put up with in terms of restrictions and in terms of oppression. So I think, yes, uh, the situation right now may be very grim in many places in the uh, Arab world, but I still hope that in, say, 20, 30 years from today, this new generation will have become the generation of leaders and take this region towards a much better future. And freedom and dignity would be the, the vanguard. Absolutely. This is still missing, but it's still as fundamental as ever. And until the region has that, we can't really talk about peace being achieved in the Middle East. Lena, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. A pleasure as always. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Lina Khatib, Director of the Middle East and North Africa Program at Chatham House. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. For academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.